0: Welcome to ETF Working Lunch, an ETF.com podcast in partnership with women in ETFs. Our goal is to sit down and talk to some of the smartest women in the ETF business. I'm your host, Cynthia Murphy, here with my colleague, Lara Rigger. Hello. And we are joined today by the one and only Perth Toll, founder of Life and Liberty Indexes. Perth has extensive experience in this industry, and she's behind the first-of-a-kind Freedom-Weighted Index, benchmarking the Alpha Architect 100 Emerging Market ETF, FRDM, that came to market last year. Welcome, Perth. Thanks for having me. So let's first talk about the important stuff. Congratulations on your big win for ETF.com Awards this year, Best New International Equity ETF for FRDM. Best index of the year for the Life and Liberty Index underlying that ETF. When you look at this recognition, uh, what's your biggest takeaway, Perth? What do you think has caused this freedom-weighting strategy to resonate so much with the ETF industry?
1: Yeah, thanks, guys. That was um, that was a, a true honor for me and for us to receive um, that kind of recognition from industry leaders and um you know, being first before the before the judges had their vote, being voted in by um, investors and just supporters of uh, what we do, and um, to be on there with the likes of people that I have looked up to for many many years coming into the industry and just being nominated together with them was honor enough for for me. And to, to win, uh, you know, best uh, in two categories, including the the best index of the year, was just a huge. Um, surprise and honor. So I so appreciate all of the people that voted and um, just the way that people have resonated with the strategy, um, which is, I guess, pretty different. And, um, you know, we created the Freedom 100 Emerging Markets Index to be a way for people who believe in the benefits of freedom to have a way to express those values in their investments um, and also, we just think it's a it makes more sense than the market cap weighting in an emerging markets uh, strategy. So, um, the fact that people are using this and can resonate with it as um, a way to express those beliefs um, in in freedom in their emerging markets allocations, that's the best that we could ask for um, in something like this.
0: So, before we we dive into the investment case for emerging markets broadly right now, um, you know. The specific investment case for a focus on freedom, um, that's that goes beyond, you know, just kind of an ESG lens, if you will. Right. It makes uh, more sense from an investment perspective. Can you talk about that?
1: Yeah. So um, so freedom, you know, based on our research and the research of our think tank partners um, does lead to all kinds of beneficial outcomes, not just economically economically. Um, but as far as investment returns, you know, we, if you look at throughout history, the freest countries have always been the ones who have been the most dynamic and most innovative. Um, and um, the, the less free countries have always been the ones that are more stagnant. So um, throughout history, you see that freedom does lead to better uh, economic returns, but also it leads to other better outcomes, such as, you know, higher Growth, higher, you know, uh, income per capita, higher life expectancy, and so forth. So, it has a lot of societal and economic benefits. Um, but we created this strategy based on the thesis that freer countries do have more sustainable growth, because you can have an unfree country with a lot of debt-driven growth um, that just isn't sustainable over the long run, um, or you can have a free country that uses, you know, the, the ingenuity of their people. Um, to power their growth, and that is much more dynamic in the long run. Um, freer countries are also more resilient, and maybe you will see that going forward here, um, coming out of this crisis, um, because they can, they can be more flexible to market trends.
2: One one quick question for you, uh, Perth. When you when you say freedom, that's a very broad term. How exactly are you measuring freedom um, when you're saying freer countries do this and not as free countries do that? Like, how are you defining and measuring freedom?
1: Yeah. So we use data from three think tanks: the Takedo Institute, the Fraser Institute, and the Friedrich Naumann Foundation for Freedom. And they have a joint project that combines seventy six measures of human and economic freedoms, and I break them down into the rights to life, liberty, and property. So the rights to life are things like terrorism, trafficking, um, internal organized conflict or wars within the region, um, disappearances, torture, and so forth. Um, Rights to liberty are things like press freedoms, um, freedom of religion, freedom of speech, freedom of expression, freedom of assembly, and so forth. And then your economic freedoms are Rights to, to property, so taxation, rule of law, private property rights, um, freedom to trade internationally, sound monetary policy, and so forth. So there's 76 different factors um, within the overall country score that is given to each country, and we take the emerging markets universe and rank, and using the rank of the countries and their scores, um, turn those into country inclusion and country weights. So our country weights are 100% freedom weighted uh, based on their country scores, which are are based on those 76 variables. Got it. And is there an exclusionary uh, approach here
0: too? Do you just freedom weight or do you exclude economies that you don't think fit those criteria?
1: Yeah. So the freedom weighting methodology does have an exclusionary element, um, but it, it goes along as part of the whole approach. So the methodology will give country weights based on their scores and certain scores are going to come out with negative weights and the ones that come out with negative weights are excluded. So those are the ones that have the very worst human rights um, kind of records and they're the worst actors as far as human and economic freedoms. Um, Those do get excluded, but uh, it's not purely exclusionary. In other words, you know, once we exclude those countries, um, the other countries are still weighted based on freedom. So the higher freedom countries still get a higher weight than the lower freedom countries out of the included ones. Mm-hmm.
2: So so one of the things that pops out of freedom weighting that I find really interesting and a lot of people who, uh, you know, are following your fund find interesting is that you are, you know, ex-China, right? There's no China in your fund. Um, and you've said it before, you, you know, Hey, we'd love to have China if they actually meet these freedom metrics, but they don't. You know, it, it's it's interesting, and, and this kind of I guess steps back to the uh, you know the topic of like what's the investment case for emerging markets. But emerging markets have become synonymous lately with China, right? Like, even if you're not investing in China, you're still sort of investing in China because all of the economies of these emerging markets are linked. Um, you know, they're dependent on what China's doing. They you know. China's involved in the supply chain and so on and so forth. So how does, you know, taking this freedom weighted approach that is ex-China, uh, that doesn't have any China in it, how, how does that change your emerging market exposure?
1: Yeah, so you bring up a really good point. And China is such a huge part of global investing and especially emerging markets investing that we all have a lot of, a lot of exposure to it without even that direct exposure. But in emerging markets indexes, especially that are market capitalization weighted, there's right now 38 to 41 percent in direct China exposure. If you look at MSCI and FTSE indices. So if you're in a product like IEMG, EEM or VWO, IEMG and EEM have between 36 and 38 percent in China currently and VWO has 41 percent. And that's as of right now today. So. Um, so that that's a lot of concentration in China, and and you know I think one thing that you know in emerging markets investors have noticed is that over the last ten years or so, I mean there's just not been a lot of growth in emerging markets. If you if you're measuring emerging markets by um, you know these these broad indices that I just mentioned and, and their funds, so um, that China exposure has contributed to a lot of that, um, and. If you look at just China alone, like, for example, the Shanghai Composite Index, the last 10 years have been pretty flat, and China has grown a lot in the last 10 years, so that's undeniable. Um, But why didn't foreign investors have a part in that growth? Why was the the index flat, right? Um, and, And that's what happens sometimes. It's a good example of when you invest in an unfree market, a lot of those returns are not benefiting foreign investors. So they do absolutely want to open up to foreign investors. They, they need that foreign direct investment. Um, and a lot of the foreign investments that we give them actually with a, with a, uh, with a political system like they have, um, they want that because it, it helps to actually legitimize um, their system. So a lot of their, you know, power comes from the economic growth in their country. So, and that part of that is the stock market. So, they don't have the rule of law or the um, investor protections in place to kind of ensure that the the investors in their in their country get the bulk of the returns. And in an unfree country, a lot of the state actors are the ones who end up with a lot of the returns. So, um, there's a lot of you know other issues as well. You know, we've just seen with Luckin Coffee. For example, um, even a company that is listed on a a US exchange, there can be some disclosure issues, some transparency issues um, that can lead to a lot of uh, problems. So, that's, you know, Luckin' Coffee is not a one off, it's not, you know, just a single example. There's, you know, pretty, it's pretty widespread. And so, there's just some issues there with um, investing a lot of your allocation in one country no matter what country it is, but especially a country that is not as free, um, there's going to be a lot more risk there.
0: What about the the issue of uh, investing too heavily on state-owned uh, enterprises, SOEs, which I think the last time I looked was about a third of the MSCI emerging market index. I mean, those tend to also be prevalent in economies that are uh, not as free, right? So does... Does FRDM um, invest in SOEs? Does it exclude them um, by default? Because the, the issue with the SOE is that it's really not seeking necessarily to return shareholder value. right? Yeah. It's a state-owned enterprise. So it, it serves a different, a different master, if you will.
1: Yes. <laughs> Thanks for that question. So, yes, we, we do exclude state-owned enterprises across all countries. So that's just to bring the economic freedom theme all the way through. And um, the reason why we do that is is the state-owned enterprises are just not as efficient in their use of um, capital. And the same thing with on the country level. um, A country that is not as free uh, has more human flight or human capital flight and um, capital uh, destruction. So not only human capital, but economic capital as well, I should say. So they have less efficient use of capital and labor um, on both the country level and also with a state-owned enterprise on the state level so anytime you have the state involved um, whether it's very heavily in the economy of a country or whether it's very heavily you know in a company itself um, like you said you are serving now two masters and one of them is probably going to be the one that has the upper hand um, so if you if you want more efficient um, kind of, A more efficiently run company or a more efficiently run country, you're probably going to want um, as little state intervention as possible.
0: Yeah, what's interesting, I think, is I was recently talking to uh, another issuer behind also a a more novel take on emerging markets and just the concept that there are better ways to invest in emerging markets, but it is a difficult um, message to get out there. It's so entrenched, I think, in the advisory community. Just the you know hit your EM or VWO, put that in your allocation, represent, and and it's hard. I think the messaging that there are better ways to think about this space. I, mean, I think you winning all these awards in the last year tell the message that you know people are listening. But um, is I would imagine it's a hurdle, right, to get this messaging out there.
1: Yeah, absolutely, um, it is. It's a message that I think people resonate with right away, and I so appreciate that. Um, but I, I have the same hurdles as any new ETF, which is, before you hit that kind of fifty million mark, um, you're not allowed on a lot of platforms. There's, you know, some issues as far as you know, spreads, uh, volume, uh, the same things that any new ETF deals with. So I think uh, you know. Actually, it's a funny anecdote. When we won those awards, <laughs> uh, my daughter, who's nine, um, said, "Mommy, I can't believe you win all these awards and you still have no money in the fund, right?" <laughs> so, um, and I think she has a fair point. Wow, nine-year-olds keep yes. it real. Jeez. <laughs> <laughs> so she's involved in kind of everything I do, as you know. She was she was at the bell ringing and all of that. So because um, she kind of gets, she kind of hears the most of it, uh, being here with me. So. Uh, so so yeah so she you know brings up a good point and I think sometimes um, it is it, for new issuers we're, we get, we can be pretty hard on ourselves as far as why don't we have um, more AUM right at this stage and and this fund is less than a year old um, we're in the middle of a global crisis of, that no, no none of us had ever encountered before um, that is a very risk off kind of environment and um, and I think. And yesterday, actually on Twitter, one of our uh, one of our, our supporters in uh, an investor in India uh, tweeted out something about how uh, smaller funds, newer funds, have this hurdle, and it reminded me. I was like, oh yeah, you know, we shouldn't be so hard on ourselves, and you know, we have so much support from our investors already. You know, this is a decent sized fund for for a new fund, and. Um, for it to have gathered this much momentum, um, even this early stage, and uh, you know people are considering it for, you know, part of their allocations or um, their whole allocations, and when they consider it for part of their allocations, it's along with other funds that I consider you know extremely good funds, and that's that's really uh, it's an it's enough for us. So it's, you know, yeah, we go through the same hurdles as everyone else, um, and I think we as new issuers forget about that sometimes, that there is this hurdle for new ETFs. And we don't focus on that because we know that going in. But the fact that we don't focus on that means that we are sometimes more harder on ourselves and we forget, yeah, there's these very real industry size hurdles in place. And um, just because our focus is on growing our own funds and not on the the, um, obstacles doesn't mean that the obstacles aren't there. Mm
2: I'm curious, Perth, if if you could wave a wand, right, wave a magic wand and change one thing about the ETF industry um, to make it easier for a smaller issuer like yourself to succeed,
1: <laughs> what would it be? <laughs> um, wow, that's a good question. <laughs>
2: <laughs> would it be like getting on those platforms earlier at a lower um, asset base? I mean,
1: yeah. Um, no, I think that. Platform access would probably be top of the list mm-hmm. because I do have a lot of people that have reached out and said hey I'm waiting for this to be available on my platform. Just wanted to let you know. It's great what you're doing. and Thank you um, And we're gonna allocate as soon as it's on the platform, right? So there's people that want it but cannot ha- cannot get it for their clients because of that, um, you know, I think all the other hurdles are um, easier to overcome um, because Things like spreads, right? You have people that are kind of helping back behind the scenes and there's, you know, competition among the APs and that's going to help people get best execution when they're doing trades, um, regardless of the spreads. Um, Things like volume. People are becoming more aware that the underlying liquidity, which our underlying liquidity is actually... Comparable to, or sometimes better than VWO, because we only use the top ten largest, most liquid stocks in each in each country. So we have, you know, ten stocks per country. They're the top ten most liquid and largest non-SOEs in that country. Um, so it's very liquid underlying, and people are more uh, uh, in tune with, you know, the underlying liquidity being the better measure of liquidity these days. So um, I think with with ETFs, the the only thing that we absolutely as smaller issuers cannot get around is that um uh, that platform hurdle. Yeah, absolutely.
2: Well, so I guess with the 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 last few minutes that we have available here, um, I wanted to ask you what you see as some of the the biggest challenges facing emerging markets investors going forward. Is it um especially now, right? With yeah. like the pandemic just everywhere, right? And and you know, especially hitting uh, emerging market countries harder, so so on and so forth. So what do you see as some of the the biggest hurdles or obstacles moving forward for uh, emerging markets?
1: Yeah, so, you know, they say emerging markets is uh, countries where political risk matters as much as economic risk. And so with emerging markets, especially with the crisis that we're having, you see the politics in play. um, And these politics, you know, Sometimes in developed markets, or you know, for investors who very naturally, and myself included, have home country bias, um, you know, we don't consider politics as much in our investment decisions or in um, just our forecasting. But the politics have led to the you know a lot of the consequences of this pandemic, um, especially you know in its origins, and so. Um, you know, we may at this point we don't know the or- actual origins of the of the you know of the COVID nineteen and where it actually came from. We don't we don't know any of that. We may never know any of that because of the politics at play. Um, so politics become a bigger part of in- investing. Um, you know, now that we've seen it, seen the 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 part that it plays in not only this pandemic but also in just all the markets around the world um, in response to it. So. I think that is a, is a big hurdle for investors to consider not only, um, and especially for I'm talking with ETF investors, not only to consider the size of the market when you're deciding where to invest. In other words, not only using a market cap weighted approach, um, which in the emerging markets makes just a lot less sense because um, you end up with, like I said, 38 to 41% in one country um, in China and um, a country that has very outsized political risk as well. And, um, you know, I think a freedom-weighted approach um, does make more sense just because it's the freer countries that are in the emerging markets that are going to become tomorrow's developed markets. And if you look at the developed markets, if you look at their overall scores, they all have much higher scores than the emerging markets. And so you can draw kind of a almost a, uh, a linear kind of a progression there where if the country protects individual freedoms and um, you know, economic and personal freedoms, that this country has laid the foundation for growth going forward because they have unfettered their, their government from their people and the people can then be creative and innovative. So um, if you believe in human ingenuity to get us out of this, this crisis and also to get us out of many other crises that will follow this one, um, and to solve problems in the world, then you know freedom is a much better way to invest than just market cap weighting, especially in emerging markets.
2: Totally makes sense. Well, mm-hmm. um, we'll have to leave it there. Thank you, Perth, uh, for the great insights, for the great conversation. It's always lovely uh, having you on. Thank you for having me uh, and and having you in conversation. So <laughs> thank you. <laughs> stay safe. Stay healthy. So. For more information on emerging markets uh, or about anything ETFs or to catch up on previous episodes, please visit us at ETF.com. And uh, for more information on how to get involved in women in ETFs, please visit womeninETFs.com, all one word. You can write to us uh, with your questions, your comments, your thoughts on freedom waiting or whatever at ETF Working Lunch. that's all one word, ETF Working Lunch at ETF.com. On behalf of Perth Toll, Cynthia Murphy, and the rest of the ETF.com team, I'm Laura Krigger. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next episode.